going to read from Luke's gospel, his uh, account, true account, he said. He gathered the evidence, he listened to the eyewitnesses, put it together for us that we may be encouraged and strengthened and come to belief. I'm going to start from uh, verse 50 in Luke 23 and read through to chapter 24, verse 12. It'll be on the screen. Thank you, Sarah, so much. Now, there was a man called Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man, who had not consented to their decision and action. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea, and he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth, and placed it in a tomb, cut in the rock, one in which no one had been laid yet. It was preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. On the first day of the week, Very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves. And he went away, wondering to himself, What had happened? Father, may this this account, this testimony, this story of that moment when eyes began to open and hearts realized a penny drops, something completely different. We know the story, but may not know it well enough. Maybe there's some here today for whom this is a moment when life changes. Whoever and however we are, 
let this story not only ring true, but resound within us. It's all about you, Jesus. Amen. So after the Friday, the heartbreaking Friday that was filled with darkness, brutal darkness, literal darkness, we're told in the the Gospels that it went dark from noon till three. The apparent darkness and the onslaught and victory of violence as the Son of Man, Jesus, breathed his last. And sorrowful Saturday. As I was preparing this, I, I tried to think into what Saturday, Sabbath, rest, perhaps was like for those first followers, those disciples, those scattered, those fearful shock, probably, undoubtedly grief, tears, no doubt a sense of powerlessness, the injustice of it, the anger at the authorities, maybe cries of desperation to God, perhaps demoralization and fear, hopes that were in tatters, that they'd come together at the festival of Passover, of what should have been remembrance and thanksgiving, the statement and remembrance of God's victory, yet now writ with the words of Jesus as he breathed his last, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then on the Sunday, on the very first day of the week, just like today, I was up and early out. Perhaps the grass was damp and the first rays of the morning sun were piercing through perhaps a mist. Just the first rays of light in the sky. The sound of footsteps. A handful, three or four, quiet yet purposeful. Maybe in that early morning light, a glimpse of them walking, not loitering, no laughter. Despite uh, the sun and the beginnings of warmth, a deep sense of heaviness around them. A small group of women, they awoke before dawn, early. And they set out from their home on a particular journey towards the tomb. The tomb where they had seen Jesus' body left. Just two days before, a few hours that had been agonizingly slow, they knew where to go. Each of the gospel accounts tells a different, the same story from a slightly different perspective, bringing with it uh, their own sense of purpose, of emphasis, But when we kind of hold those accounts together, we see that Mary Magdalene was there. Probably, maybe, as a leader of this little group, so was Mary, the mother of James, and two other women named Joanna and Salome. But all four of the Gospels tell us it was the early hours. All four of the Gospels tell us, out of any of them, of the disciples who Jesus had gathered, it was they who accompanied the body to the tomb. 
They'd seen Joseph of Arimathea. They'd seen where the body was laid and the Roman guard would gathered and the stone, the big stone rolled across and death and blood and tomb and full stop and end of. In each of the four accounts, there is the silence of the story. The death of Jesus, the burial, Friday, and silence. And then on the first day of the week, in the first rays of light, the women. These women were some of the most committed followers of Jesus. Women who had been with him and cared for him and traveled with him from place to place. And for the duration of his ministry, they had loved Jesus They'd seen what a difference his love and compassion and power had made in their lives. Read their stories. They loved him and they served him. And now that Sunday, that first Sunday, they set out to love him and to serve him one last time. Dorothy Sayers reflected on this. She was a friend of C.S. Lewis. And she was writing about this and and the ministry too and with women in this fashion. And I hope this is an encouragement to you. Over the course of the last months since Christmas, we've been following a theme in our mornings of the heart of Jesus. And in the response of people, you gather something about the heart of Jesus because of their response to his gracious, loving, wide open heart. She writes... Perhaps it's no wonder that women were the first at the cradle and last at the cross. They'd never known a man like this Jesus. There's never been another like him. A prophet and teacher who never nagged women, never flattered or coaxed or patronized, who never made sick jokes about women, who rebuked without coyness and praised without condescension, who took women's questions and arguments seriously, who never mapped out a certain sphere for women, never urged them to be more feminine or jeered at women for being female, who had no axe to grind and no uneasy male dignity to defend, who took women as he found them and was completely unselfconscious. There was no act, no sermon, no parable in the whole gospel that borrows its pungency from female perversity. No one could possibly get from the words and deeds of Jesus that there was anything particularly funny or inferior about a woman's nature. I love the heart of Jesus. In so many ways as he brings forth the kingdom in his teaching and in his life and now as we will see in his resurrection. He breaks through the social conventions and norms and challenges cultures again and again. Welcoming all into the kingdom. And even in the resurrection, the amazing, amazing example of women. The first person Jesus revealed himself to as as Messiah was a woman. The woman at the well, John 4. The first 
person that the news of the incarnation came to, of course, was a woman. The first person to be converted from the Gentile world was a woman. Uh, The first resurrection teaching was given to a woman here in this very story in Luke. And the first witness to the resurrection was a woman. And the first witnesses to the resurrection were women. They ran to tell the apostles. As Luke transitions and begins to describe this most extraordinary event, he says on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb. And as we see them in that first light, in their purposefulness and sadness, he describes something of detail that they're carrying something in their hands. Something strangely fascinating in this little detail. Something worth considering. They prepared this on the Friday and only now were they able to bring. You see, Jesus had spent three years teaching people, his apostles, disciples, followers, the crowds, those who would listen, the religious and the powerful, what he'd come to accomplish And one thing again and again that he had taught them was this, that though he would die on Friday, he would rise on a Sunday. He told them that he would be delivered over to the people who hated him and that he would be put to death. But also that three days later he would rise. And of course these women and all the others had heard this. They knew it, but somehow it didn't sink in. Somehow they couldn't quite believe it. Because they were going to the tomb fully expecting to find a dead body, a corpse, lifeless, decaying. How do we know? Because of what they carried in their hands. As they went to the tomb, they carried jars filled with spices and ointments, the kind used to anoint and prepare a body for its final burial. They were going to the tomb fully expecting to find the body. And of course, from our vantage point, looking back and having heard the story and celebrated, and rightly so, We know that they they didn't find a dead, decaying body. In fact, they didn't find any body at all, did they? They found a stone rolled away and men or angel guardians and the tomb empty and the grave clothes left. It was the empty tomb. It wasn't the wrong one. We're clearly told that they'd been there on the Friday with Joseph. They knew where this tomb was and where their dear friend and Lord Jesus was buried. They knew and they discovered there was a huge guard and a huge stone and the seal of imperial Rome. Do not mess. Of course they knew where it was. A historian, a Jewish commentator writes this, when every argument has been considered and weighed, the only conclusion acceptable to any historian must be that the opinions of the orthodox, the liberal sympathizer, and the critical agnostic alike, and perhaps even of the disciples themselves, are simply interpretations 
of the one disconcerting fact, namely that the women who set out to pay their last respects to Jesus found to their consternation not a body, but an empty tomb. The crucifixion and his burial, and on the Sunday, an empty chamber. Resurrection. In the words of Monty Python, and now for something completely different. Because it's never happened before. Everything is different. It's a disjuncture. If you're into computers, it's like your computer with that blue screen, a syntax failure, system error. Something is now completely different. Everything that we've experienced to this point, birth, life, struggle, death, wake up, work, eat, sleep, repeat, repeat, death. Only one thing certain, we're told, death and taxes, full stop. But now for something completely different. The tomb is empty. Henry Morris, in The Resurrection of Christ, the best proof fact in history, says it is no exaggeration, therefore, to maintain that the bodily resurrection of Christ is as certain as any fact of history can ever be. If there is anything at all in which we can believe with absolute confidence, absolute confidence, it is the fact that Jesus Christ died, was buried, then conquered death and is now alive. We find our dear sisters in that struggle of a new reality, a paradigm shift. They found their minds shocked and overwhelmed and bewildered. Shocked and overwhelmed and bewildered, even though Jesus had told them exactly what to expect, but at least they turned up. Jesus had said, on the third day, I will rise. And the women said, on the third day, let's go and complete the burial. Jesus had said, on Sunday, I will be alive. The women said, on Sunday, let's care for his corpse. They didn't believe it. They didn't expect it. They didn't believe the promise. And just as these women failed to take God at his word, so do we. In our deepest sorrows, Have you found yourself neglecting his promises in our darkest valleys? We can ignore his assurances. He promises that he will never leave us or forsake us, yet somehow we get shocked when he doesn't desert us, but instead stays close beside us. He promises that he will work all things for good, yet somehow we can be surprised when we see him bringing blessing through sorrow. He he promises that he doesn't break a bruised reed or snuff out a smoldering wick, yet somehow we can still be baffled when he carefully tends to our wounds and lovingly dries our tears. Somehow, we are surprised when God does precisely what he's promised he will do. If Easter says anything at all to us, it's that Jesus is always... And always will be with us. Think about this. The pyramids of Egypt. Why are they famous? Because they're amazing structures. But they really 
famous because they contain the mummified bodies of ancient Egyptian pharaohs. Visit Westminster Abbey in London and you can move amongst the plaques and the memorials because in it rest the bodies of English notables and nobles and people of learning and accomplishment. Mohammed's tomb is noted for the stone coffin and the bones it contains. And even not so far away near Birmingham, the National Arboretum, 400 memorials for lives given rightly, a place of solemnity and reverence and thanksgiving. And yet, the garden tomb of Jesus is famous for what? Because it's empty. See, the most important question concerning Jesus then is simply this. Do you think he's dead or alive? How would you answer that? If Jesus is simply dead, there are any number of ways that we can relate ourselves to his life and some of his accomplishments. And we might even, if some obscure bit of information turns up, hope to learn a little bit more about him. But we can't reasonably expect to learn anything more from him. That's if he's dead. But if he's alive, everything changes. It's no longer a matter of our questioning a historical record, but a matter of our being put in question by the one who has broken every rule of ordinary human existence. It's now something completely different. If Jesus lives, then he must be the life giver. Jesus is not simply a figure of the past in that case, but a person now of the present, this present tense, this life amongst us. Not merely a memory that we can analyze and stand distant from, but an agent, a presence, a person who confronts us and instructs us and meets us and journeys with us. What can we learn about him must therefore include what we continue to learn from him. For he's alive. Back to our sisters at the tomb. It's worth asking what should these women have brought on Sunday morning? What should they have brought? Not the spices. Not ointments. Not the stuff of mourning and death and burial. They should have brought food and streamers and instruments and all the stuff of party and celebration. They should have approached the tomb with faith and confidence and with expectation. They should have approached it with a belief that it would be empty. With faith that Jesus was going to do exactly what Jesus had said he would do. And what was true in their lives is true, true in yours and mine. What, is true, what was true in their sorrow is true in ours. What is true in their bewilderment is true in ours. And you know what? We live best when we live with the assurance that God will do nothing more or nothing less than what he has said he will do. He is alive. It happened at Easter tomb, thou shalt hold him no longer. Death is strong, but life is stronger. Stronger than the dark, the light. Stronger than the wrong, the right. Faith and hope triumphant say, 
Christ is risen on Easter Day. Let's pray. To the seeker, Jesus is to be found. He's calling out your name and saying, come to me. Put your trust in me. To the atheists, those who say, there is no God. How does you account for this? Not only the most established fact of history, but the ongoing amazing declaration of the risen Jesus in how he transforms lives and that we are recipients and live in the light of that resurrection. The evidence is plain to see. Would you have the courage to look fairly and squarely into the empty tomb and say why? Not brush it off with simple kind of, oh, it's just a myth. It's a religious concoction. Would you attend your intellect and your heart to perhaps the most astonishing thing where everything is completely different? And you may know deep down that it just doesn't work any other way. And to the agnostic, the, the, the unconvinced, the hedging your bets of just sort of thinking, well, I'm just not really ready yet. I just urge and appeal to you, don't delay on this day. The tomb is empty, he's alive. Are you ready for something completely different? To begin new life. It's just as he said, he had to suffer and die and crucified for you. That his death, he embraced to spare us, to rescue us, to love us in life and through death into new life. Truly, this is power. And he's close by you, by his spirit. Trust me, he says. As we sang just earlier, every knee should bow. Would you bow the knee to Jesus? He's risen. And would you confess with your mouth, he is Lord. Please be my savior. I'm so, so sorry for doubting and disbelieving and living life that way. Now I choose true life.
And I pray, Lord, for the believers, the wonderful saints, children of God that we're part of, gathered with. In a world which has so many ways of, of casting a veil over this truth, let this knowledge sink deep. In the personal circumstances and the assaults of the evil one, the persecutor and the one who would continue to get us to think, no, 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 this can't be true. It is entirely reasonable and demonstrable and historical and based on the fact that we know you and love you. You come into our very lives. Hallelujah. Christ is risen. Amen. Thank you.